Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise in settlement-like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement consulting. Without further delay, here's another episode of Trial Lawyer View with Alejandro Blanco. Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, the podcast that brings you the inside world of litigation and the fascinating stories behind some of the most significant trial lawyers in the country. Today, I'm honored to have Alejandro Blanco on the show with over 35 years of experience in civil litigation and more than 130 civil trials under his belt across 15 states. He's established himself as a formidable force in the world of trial law. And I, I need to read this. So I wanted to give you a little bit of background from his bio. Uh, After earning his law degree in Argentina at just 23 years old, he moved to the United States in 1986, passing the bar on his first attempt without going to a U.S. law school and became the third lawyer with an Argentinian law degree to be licensed in California. He's since obtained record-setting verdicts in traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury cases throughout the country. His accolades, among many, include being named the 2002 Trial Lawyer College Warrior of the Year in the Western U.S. region and being one of the 2014 finalists for Trial Lawyer of the Year for Consumer Attorneys of California. He's also the senior founder of Trial Structure and a sought-after speaker on trial skills and securing substantial verdicts. He has served as a consultant for over 20 seven and eight figure verdicts in the last five years and is currently involved in catastrophic brain and spinal cord injury cases as well as helping marines and their families in the camp lejeune litigation i can't wait to hear his insights and advice for fellow trial lawyers alejandro welcome to trial lawyer you so delighted that you could join me as a guest today i appreciate it well thank you jason for having us i mean this is it's an honor and uh, I'm humbled. So let's see if I can contribute and what we can talk about that is of help. Well, I, I want to start out just a little bit of a background question, because I just found it so interesting about your unique path to becoming a lawyer here in the U.S., you know, passing the California bar without attending uh, college in the U.S. or law school. How, how did that change or shape your perspective on the legal profession and being a trial lawyer here in the U.S.? Well, first of all, it was heroin because, you know, I, I took the bar back in 87 in July just to figure out what the law was about and how the exams were. South American or Ar- at least Argentinian law school is seven years. Uh, I happened to do, do it in three and a half years, but we studied all sorts of things, one of which is comparative procedure and comparative substantive law. So uh, we had the pleasure of knowing German procedure, French procedure. Uh, British procedure, American procedure, but just for federal courts, since you can't really study 50 different civil procedures. Uh, you, you really had to know that stuff. But when you come up here and now you have, you know, a specific uh, bar, everybody kept telling me California bar was the worst, most difficult, nobody passed it. So I just took it in order to pass or in order to, to 
figure it out, warm up. Okay, if I take it two or three times, I might be able to pass it. And uh, I have to give credit to the folks at Barbary. It's not a plug-in. Um, but uh, back in 80, uh, 86, uh, I didn't have enough money um, to pay for the books. So I proctored it. And I would listen. You got, I studied. And I saw that my Napoleonic law background did not help with the Saxon law background of California. So when I did take it, to me, it was, you know, you always get stressed when you take the bar. But <laughs> in that sense, is I didn't have a problem because I was just taking the bar to see what it looked like. So after three grueling days, I went back home and I started the waiting period. Sometime in um, Thanksgiving uh, time and back in, in 1987, I got this letter in the box. And I remember just going to open it up and goes okay it's not it and i open up and says we would like to sell you malpractice insurance i turn to my wife i'm 24 years old and i said they want to sell me insurance i passed I, I you know so i was like okay now what i had no idea i mean i knew it in my head i knew what you were supposed to do i knew the words I've never taken a deposition in my life. I've never done a, a trial, mock trial. I mean, I I looked at people and, you know, I'd say, what are you guys doing? So um, the first couple of years were harrowing. Um, I did take a, a little bit of a time out. I was doing some work uh, with Argentina uh, in terms of international business law, my background. Uh, so civil procedure and personal injury uh, in California was not I remember going sitting down through a deposition and not even knowing what an objection was. So uh, heroin uh, would be uh, the, the good way of describing it. Uh, of course, the trusted books, you know, how do you lay a foundation? You know, they would tell me, go go take a look at like what Magana says. And I would go, who's Magana? Um, California legend on evidentiary uh, books and so forth. But it was fun. Uh, I had the privilege of having two very very good experienced trial lawyers, uh, Miller and Medeiros and Dale Grimm. They passed away already, but they were legendary uh, in California, Medeiros and Grimm. Uh, they had been part of Hagenbaugh, Murphy, Murphy and Medeiros. And then Miller took the best trial lawyer out of a defense firm, opened up a plaintiff firm. And they uh, threw me into the deep side of the pool and said, swim. So I, that's how I started. That's an incredible story. I funny, I worked, I did work for Barbary when I was in law school to to get my Barbary course for free. And I, I would definitely credit Barbary for helping me pass the bar. So uh, but I, I can't imagine, you know, that that dedication and um uh abilities to go and do what you did and how you did it. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So you, you've had now 35 years of trial experience and um, trying cases in over 15 states. What do you consider to be the top three biggest trial successes that you've had? And then what was your biggest challenges in those cases to overcome to get that verdict? Well, in terms of uh, having, I, I, I even this uh, past weekend um, with in Nashville with John Romano's uh, traumatic brain injury program, I, I tease the attendees that I had the privilege of not being decerebrated the first year of law school in America. So I wasn't taught to think like a lawyer. But that, so that, that's an advantage. The disadvantage is I 
while I did go to Berkeley uh, from 79 to 82 as a, as a younger undergraduate before Argentina decided to go to war against England, um, the, the problem is I didn't grow up in this generation in this folks. So I, I don't, I did not know much, most of the um, culture codes. Uh, and so it was my thinking that if you presented the evidence intellectually and you supported what's duty, breach, causation, damages, based upon, you know, what is the legal uh, requirements that you win. And so the biggest challenge was disowning that notion that if you if you prove those elements, you win. What I notice is that, and this is this current way of thinking, but from what I saw throughout the years, you would go and prove the case and you would lose. And uh, I personally had, perhaps because of my accent, perhaps because I never really wanted to become Alex White. I always stuck with Alejandro Blanco. That I would have uh, folks in the in the groups uh, in the juries come back and you know, come over and say, "Don't insult our intelligence." When I had a herniated disc that was asymptomatic before, and I would get you know eight hundred bucks you know on a rear end uh, trial. Long Beach can be cruel as a as a venue, but what I realized that the biggest biggest problem is the Defense Research Institute has figured out how to jury nullify the uh, the folks. Uh, the, the audiences um, in the civil arena. So I didn't know how to talk about it. I did. I, I just saw it happening to me. And Jason, I, I always tease that I developed PTSD after 45 trials, uh, you know, as a younger lawyer, because, you know, it's like I never knew what was going to happen. Do you know what PTSD stands for, at least for me? No, no, not, not post-trial. <laughs> uh, right. It's pre-trial stress disorder yeah. because, you know, you, you, you have your experts, you, you marshal all your evidence, you have your questions, you know what you're going to do. Then you go to trial and these folks from the other side, they come up with an interesting way of, you know, like um, some sort of uh, story that they came up, you know, I, I, for example, I had a case in Norwalk, California, rear end at 50 or 60 miles an hour on a stall car in the freeway. And the defense lawyer got up, a good friend of mine, as he's still in practice in California, so I won't mention his name, although I want to. Uh, and he said, how do you like to live in a society like this where people sue you for nothing? It only takes 500 bucks to sue you somebody. And so I got my first admitted, I mean, uh, I proved liability on the rear end and I got a $0 verdict. So the biggest challenge that I saw was overcoming this, what we now call psychological warfare from the defense. And uh, which is basically every psychological technique to jury nullify um, the, our, our groups, our juries, uh, or to nullify their, their thinking process so that they are run by emotions. It's, um, they have lately come up with such a, vociferous opposition to reptile. And what I've seen, Jason, is that um, while I understand that reptile ought not to be used uh, to incite the passions of the jury, that's exactly what the defense does. They do a reverse reptile, which is annoying uh, because judges think it's fair for them to do it under due process. Biggest, uh, biggest case I've ever had, 
I mean, I've had no good, very good cases, you know, and I, I'm humble because as the way I see it is big, big game, big, big cases are always a team effort. You know, the, the trial lawyers that are involved, uh, whether they're leads or co-leads, everyone is part of the team, paralegals, the associates that, you know, that pour out and, and do the evening or the, you know, midnight oil, you know, writing the briefs in order to counter the the new motion that the the, uh, the defense gave you at 4.45 p.m., just before we went, you went to uh, bed on, on a Wednesday afternoon after not sleeping for five or six days. But the biggest... Um, Biggest results I had was a lady. Uh, I was working in uh, the Palmdale, uh, Lancaster area, and this was a lady who had gone into a, a trailer uh, for a mammogram, and she didn't realize that the door opened outwards. And so she stepped up, she opened outwards and lost balance, and when she fell, both of her knees were hit, hit the iron area, and she had some... Mm -hmm serious and severe infection. Um, the case obviously was not worth, worth you know, millions. Um, but when we won that case, when the defense finally said, okay, we understand it was a dangerous condition, she didn't appreciate it, and we settled, her dignity was back. She was not the, you know, the dumbwit that the defense lawyers were putting out to be. And just that recognition, I mean, I... I still look at her in, in my mind's eye and smile because it was what the law is good about. It's about bringing dignity and dignified results back to people. Yeah, very well said. Having having been um, struck by a car while cycling and going through, you know, every phase of a personal injury case myself, it's um, that that's a that is a big deal. The there is something about that, you know, feeling like there there's some justice to it all you know ultimately that's that that's what it's about at least for me it was very important for me to to feel that unfortunately as i see it we plaintiff lawyers are the vilified you know unsung quote-unquote heroes and i often realize that for the insurance industry and for the corporate industry we, we really are you know the the, the, the dregs of society but for us on this side, when you can bring dignif dignified, the, what I call the appropriate value for the damages done to a human being, it changes things. It uh, it really brings good energy back to the group that has been uh, victimized. So you handle some pretty complex types of cases, TBI, neurologic injuries, catastrophic injury cases. How do you approach building a case and preparing for trial in these complex types of cases? Well, what I can tell you is uh, that I have abandoned the building of a case uh, based on damages, but I have abandoned the building of a case based upon duty breach causation because the, the, the other side has figured out uh, how to attack that very well. Over the years, I've noticed that there has been a tendency to say, well, this is, and this is us, you know, many of my friends, you know, we had a deserving family. We have a deserving plaintiff. And, and you know, don't know about you, Jason, but um, I don't know that all of us are deserving. Does that mean that if you, if, uh, if you hurt somebody who's not that deserving, who has comorbidities, who, for whatever reasons, has 
you know, diabetes or high blood pressure, that even though they are well-meaning, even though they have made mistakes in their lives, that their their life is worth less than somebody else. And I have to tell you that in California, you know, as I was growing through the ranks and becoming of age, late 80s, early 90s, uh, uh, the cervical spine injury of a Mexican-American individual was worth less than that of a uh, white Anglo-Saxon. And I raged against those, uh, you know, those limitations, against those uh, goads, because it makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, there's we still have those things. So I don't do th- so, uh, things on damages. What I have, and this is part of the trial structuring, the trial structure program that we have, is I go directly as to what it is that the defense, the other side, is saying about these particular items that we are litigating about. Uh, I've heard both Mark Lanier and, you know, Lisa Blue, although it was Lisa that mentioned, is that they they talk about there is a dispute. No, there is no dispute. They did something wrong, and now they want to get off the hook. The question is, how is it that they are trying to get off the hook? Is it that they're saying we're not liable at all here? There was no duty? Or if there is a duty, they didn't do anything wrong? Are they saying, well, we might have done something wrong, but somebody else did something else? Uh, or are they saying, you know, and usually they even blame the plaintiff. I, last week, I was in Chicago working on a hospital case with a fire in, in, the, in, the, in the face of a, of a gentleman. And the hospital is literally saying it's not our job to train the doctors on how to deal with oxygen and ignite ignition problems in the OR. It's, it's really, it's, it's the doctor's job. Now, can you imagine a hospital saying to the doctor, they're not blaming, you know? So they say, look, fires are unavoidable, even though it's a, it's a never event. So they either say that, or they say, well, patients signed a, a release. And if you assume the risk. So they're saying it's not our fault, somebody else's fault. And then finally, they cannot use any of those. They say, well, all of these symptoms are pre-existing. Or whatever we did wrong, whatever our neglect, negligence was, did not cause that event. It was not a substantial, it was not a major factor. Or finally, it says, <laughs> the last resort, the last resort, you know, is, okay, we did something wrong, we did cause it, but you should have gotten better. And uh, so the first thing that I, I start um, looking into a case is, okay, what are they going to say? And how are they going to then close those assertions or those fabrications um, into a acceptable way in which they themselves have promoted? Have you ever thought about why it is that Allstate has paid this gentleman millions and millions of dollars to say that at Allstate, we believe in accident forgiveness. It's because they've been preparing the audience to forgive accidents. And um, what do you think, uh, Jason, happens when a jury forgives the defense for an accident, when they really are sorry that they hurt, they they maim somebody? So that that is the first thing that I do. Everything else seems to in the structuring, in the organization of the evidence and the trial, even the sequencing, meaning the presentation of the trial evidence, 
everything works around exposing the 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 fabrication and the flaws of what those defenses are as you you'll enjoy this i had a case in northern minnesota we were looking down in canada we were so far up north in minnesota um, where the chief of police on a catastrophic accident said that for him in his own town city of ely it was all right to jaywalk and he was telling that to city of ely residents who were listening in evidence about a severe brain injury on somebody who had come to volunteer uh, to work on the city. So uh, it's fascinating to me how inventive, how creative the Defense Research Institute has come up to, in order to avoid responsibility. I actually have thought about writing a book, Limiting Liability, uh, as the main culprit of the decline of accountability in America. So you've, you've mentioned trial structure, and I mentioned it in my opening. Can you explain what it is and how it helps travelers prepare uh, themselves and their clients for trial? And we've had Jamie and Ilya and some others who are affiliated with trial structure, but I thought it'd be good for our audience to hear again and really from directly from uh, the horse's mouth on, you know, how to leverage trial structure to get the best possible results for their clients. Sure. Uh, well, trial structure is a name that uh, we put to what literally I've developed over the years and candidly out of desperation. Um, the joke or the teasing about developing pre-trial stress disorder is, you know, you, you're ready, you go and you lose and you figure People ask you what happened, and you don't know. What I realized over the years is that if you organize the case, and structuring just means organization. If you if you put a scaffolding, and I I come to the term a molecule. Uh, if you organize the evidence that you have in a certain pattern, the you will produce results. And it's so apropos that you are just drinking H two O. Because what happens when you have two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen? What happens? Yeah, water. That's right. Water happens. And if you do that formula, if you do that structuring of the matter or the evidence in a certain way, can you get, for let's say, um, gold with two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen? The answer is no, you'll get water. So because I'm somewhat of a nerd, because of, you know, I am, uh, if you will, I need scientific validation for what we do. I mean, I, uh, Jason, I used to go to all the seminars, 88, 89, 90, and I'd hear the then name, big names. I even went and saw Spence, you know, and he would talk with a certain cadence and he would, and we all loved him. But I realized, I said, wait a minute, that is a call to personality. So what happens if you don't have the personality? Does that mean that you cannot win the trial? I realized that that could not be. There was another fellow out of uh, AAJ, or at that time, Athla, uh, Harry Philo. Um, and uh, Harry, you know, would say there was a systems approach. You know, he, he wanted more of a systems approach. And I realized, okay, if you have a systems, a complete organizational system for the trial, 
then you can relax and your personality will shine through. You might be a very shy person. You might be a very timid, uh, you know, human being. You might be an imposing male or female. It doesn't matter because you're speaking truth and you're exposing the biggest, biggest uh, revolutionary or revolutionary finding I have is the the wrong act already happened. Somebody's got a herniated disc. Somebody has chronic, you know, soft tissue pain, brain injury, spinal cord injury. That already happened. The way of winning the trial is exposing the way in which the defense, not the defendant, but the defense is trying not to pay for that. And so what I do is I organize in a string of pearls uh, type of structure how to attack the defense unjustifiable excuses. Uh, and uh, it works. You know, I heard um, over the weekend that most people are are becoming more and more acquainted and uh, that they are experimenting with walking away from fear and more into accountability. Well, I've been... I've been pushing to hold uh, defendants accountable now for 20 years since I realized that putting the meaning of the word accountability back into the scope of the word responsibility is what law is all about. And I have no problem having the juries do that and tell people. I'll, I'll give you an example of a voir dire that I do. I say, you know, folks, Mr. Lassers, can I pick up on you for a minute? Sure. So, sir, you know, the law tells us that, and judge, I'm not saying anything about the law just now, but the law tells us that we can't have sympathy. Uh, you can't have any sympathy. And believe me, believe me, there will be some evidence in this particular case that will pull in the strings of your heart. But the law says you can have all the empathy you want, not just any sympathy. So can I get a commitment that no matter how much those strings and how much you want to from a sympathy point of view of health, that you will just stick to the law, stick to the facts, and, you know, give us your opinion based upon, you know, the, the facts and the law. Can, can I do that from you, sir? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and we need to know right now, I mean, would, would, wouldn't it be a horrible thing for the defense here if at the end of a trial you're looking at all the evidence and you go, let's see, you know, but where the damage are so bad that I need some empathy, I mean, some sympathy here. Come on, let's do something for this person. That would be not fair to them. The law says it's not fair. Can I get a commitment from you that if you have that kind of a problem, you'll raise your hand at the end and say, okay, I need to be excused. Can I get a commitment from you? Yeah. Okay, but here's the other thing. The law is good. The law is very good. It allows both sides to have the same rules. So let's say at the end of the case, you look at all of the evidence, you slice it, you dice it, and you go, I thought that Blanco guy was crazy talking about $35 million. But how is the defense going to pay it? See, that would be sympathy for the defense. So can I get the same commitment that you will go abide by what the facts are? And you might have your heart pulled and all of that, but if it is $35 million, can I get your commitment that you will make a decision without any sympathy? Yes. Okay. And, you know, if somebody, and I love, you know, what David uh, has done in the past, if you, somebody says, oh, but how's he going to pay? Can you knock on the door and tell the judge, hey, you know, we need the instruction about sympathy again. Can I get that from you? So sympathy is one of the warfares 
that is used. I have a case right now in Florida that that is being worked because one of the misconducts of the defendant and defense counsel was the fact that, you know, he pointed at, at his client and he actually pulled a Jerry Spence on us, had his client sit down in the back row of the, of the courtroom all week long and uh, look down at his shoelaces and look really de despondent uh, because he brain damaged a client of ours and the request were $14.7 million. So we're up on appeal and we'll see what the Court of Appeals in Florida says. As I said in your introduction, been a consultant to over 27 and eight figure verdicts in the last five years from med mal to civil rights to brain injury cases. Based on what you were just talking about, what do you attribute those results to, you know, from your involvement in the case? You know, what, what is it that's being done to get those kinds of results from the jury? Is it dependent on the trial lawyer or is it dependent on, you know, what is being done to, as you've put it, structure the case? Well, I think that what we do, having done so many of these cases and realizing that, you know, there's really one case. Uh, at one time, uh, Jerry asked all of our attendees, he says, you know, have you tried 100 cases or have you tried the same case 100 times? And we all figured that, oh, you have to become creative. The reality is there's only one case and it's the betrayal case. The defense has done something that is unforgivable. And uh, you can't, we can't just, we can't let it go. The challenge has been that through this psychological warfare that the defense is using, they flip the meaning of the, you know, unforgivable to this is something that we can give them a whole pass. What we do at Trial Structure is we organize the case, we bring clarity to see whether there is, in fact, things that are unforgivable. And when they are, because we are tribal mammals, because we have in uh, evolutionary sociology certain written mandates that we must abide, um, what, what that happens is it becomes very simple for the trial lawyer to relax and require accountability on the defense. Uh, we, we had a case one time, which is, I think Jamie might have mentioned it, um, North um, North uh, Florida, or what they what Jamie would call, Jamie Holland would call uh, South Georgia, um, yeah. <laughs> where, where the defense lawyer, after uh, going through uh, about three-fourths of a trial, actually after after the uh, the verdict came in, went up to plaintiff lawyer and says, how did you, how, how did you figure out my my case you know so it's like I, we kept on going back uh, to the uh, to i mean the war room every night it says did he get into the office and just grab our file did he read our reporting how do you figure out our case and, and what i can tell is that and i can give details if you want i don't want to become boring or specific is when you figure out what the defense is going to do at least 98th percentile it's a very easy to expose their their crap when you don't and you believe that you are exposing or you're you're showing the evidence to the jury, then they can hide behind those um, those uh, knee jerk reactions. What Kahneman, Kahneman calls, you know, the the shortcuts or the um, uh, the quick knee, you know, the, the quick um, decision making that juries use the biases uh, and, and they use the biases against us. Uh, you know, they call us for greedy. 
And, uh, you know, of course, we say we're not greedy. We just want $40 million. Well, how's that not greedy? But when you expose it, the fact that they're calling you greedy is because they want to get off the hook of paying that money because they know they owe it. That's a different meaning. That's a different context. Um, and I love the way that um, other uh, folks, you know, do it in terms of voir dire and, you know, um, Keith does it in terms of, you know, appropriate uh, perspective on cases. We do it in exposing the defense. What happens, uh, Jason, is when the defense does what they are being told to do, then they expose themselves as cheaters in the courtroom. And that realigns the, the jury going like, okay, they did something wrong, and now they just want to use legal loopholes to get away. So is that at the heart of this this idea of your approach, making sure that the injury victim gets the compensation that they deserve? Because that that I, I in doing my research for the podcast, that I came across something that you had said about that, and to me that really resonated. Just for one, that's what we do at Synergy, trying to make sure that we enhance and protect the client's net recovery. Uh, when we're fighting lien holders, for example, but to it, you know, with me, with my own personal injury case, that that idea of, you know, making sure that the processes are there to ultimately hold the the responsible party accountable for those damages, because, yeah, 40 million sounds like a lot of dollars, but, you know, I've seen thousands of life care plans that, you know, they're they're in that ballpark or in, and a lot more sometimes. And you know that 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 client is is going to be left with not enough money to ever really, truly take care of them for the rest of their lives. They're going to be dependent on Medicaid, Medicare, or whatnot. So it just was interesting to me, this idea of making sure the client gets the compensation they deserve through what you were just describing. Well, uh, yes. One of the things that, you know, and I do tend to uh, try to explain without giving details, but for example, if you have somebody who is, you know, mild traumatic brain injury, which is an epidemic in our, in our country, um, it's, it's, it's hellish to live in there. The anguish, the confusion, um, the, the lack of, of clarity, and, of course, the defense says it's all just psychological. No, it's not. I mean, psychological has a function that is based on our neuro neurological programs uh, and, and our neurological base. So it, it's not. But if it's just psychological, they twist. They flip that into it's all in your head. Get over it. And the last thing that we in America want is somebody to take advantage of a process but they are taken advantage by accusing somebody. So I ask one of the segmental approaches, you know, of, of, um, of trial structuring is to let the person that is hurt to say, and it's not his or her responsibility to carry the water in the case. They're one of us that just got hurt. And so all they have to do is really explain to us when they testify is when they see, how do they see? When they hear, how do they hear? When they smell, how do they smell? 
when they taste, how do they taste? And what I noticed, uh, Jason, is if we go to the basics, to the level that we all can understand, if I show you that if you're standing in front, you're here in front of me, but by the time I get to about 11 o'clock, you know, I see you, my white shirt, you see it pink, because that's what you see. Now you can begin to understand. You can begin to experience what the other. And by the time I get to about 9, 30, 10, I disappear from your visual field. Now I said, okay, what happens over here? You don't see it. And if I go to 2 or 30 or 3 o'clock, I disappear. Now you understand what is being said by brain damage affecting the visual field. But we need to see uh, what they, they see. Another thing is smell what they smell. I had a I had an astrophysicist, not a molecular physicist. Uh, she had a traumatic brain injury, and she kept on telling me that she was trained in Moscow um, for, if you will, for uh, you know how to understand formulas through colors and waves, and that she could do in an hour what it would take a supercomputer to do in six days by using that, and that she lost that. She couldn't tell it, you know, she couldn't use it. And I, I remember telling her, I said, you know, it's going to be very difficult for uh, for us here in the U.S. to understand what that means. Tell me, what do you smell? And she goes, oh, I smell like rotten fish oil uh, all day long. I can't eat anything. And I said, well, before, what did you like to eat? Oh, everything. And now I just, I eat oil. Because that's what I smell constantly, and, and I can't. I've lost about 60 pounds. So helping the individual talk about the basic functions of life, uh, see, hear, smell, taste, sense, um, that has expanded. And you know, it's showing that in terms of damages, um, they don't have to carry the water. This case is not about them. Is about what the defense did to lead them on this state. There was a, um, a case that was referenced in your bio, and I, I wanted to ask you about it out of a lot of the results you had, just because I know our team was actually involved in working with the end climate at, client. It's uh, Von Norman versus Newport Channel Inn, which okay. was one of the top 50 verdicts of 2012. Because I, I actually listened to Mr. Von Norman talk about his case and his injuries um, uh, because he, he did a recording for our team just to have our team better understand what injury victims go through. But I was just curious about your, your involvement in that particular case and how that case has, um, you know, whatever that gave you taking away from it. Well, uh, first of all, and foremost, uh, that is the quintessential um, example of teamwork. Uh, I had the the pleasure of working with Nick yeah. uh, on that case and John uh, Carpenter and uh, Steve Lass, you know, who did all the briefing. Uh, that was that was a case that nobody really liked. Um, there were so many red flags. I think it was the. Uh, um, lawyer.com or I forget which uh, publication that it uh, it has it resembled a communist uh, parade uh, in uh, in Russia um I remember putting uh, Jim on the stand and uh, 
I asked Jim not to have any uh, coffee, not to have any anything in order to enhance his function. I I wanted to, I wanted the jury to understand and see how Jim was. He uh, had some pretty severe damage after having fallen from a a twelve uh, uh, foot drop uh, because of an illegally low uh, banister on a on a second floor. Um, uh, I guess motel. And when he showed up, uh, he was doing his best he could in order to just hang on and testify. Handsome man, uh, tragedy truly. Um, what I asked him was, if we asked you to organize a road trip for a few of us from here to where. And uh, Jason literally, he says, don't ask me to do that. And his hands started to hold onto the side, you know. And I said, well, what happens, uh, Jim, when um, when people ask you to do that? And I, I got to tell you, we hadn't prepared this. He did not know that I was going to ask him this. He says, have you seen when, when a, a plane is hit and they start going down in a spiral? He said, that's what happened to me right now. Please stop. Um, in addition to that, he knew that he had uh, enjoyed alcohol a little bit too much and that that was the, um, on that evening, of course, and over his life. And he was so candid about it. First questions, uh, you know, in trial from defense, as he was, the lawyer was walking away from the jury so that Jim would have to follow was, you know, and the lawyer was walking away, uh, was, you know, you know how much you drank that night, son? And Jim said, me, sir? I'm an alcoholic. I drank all of it. And that candor, uh, you know, Nick had done such an incredible job, Bordier, on, on alcohol in the beginning to the point that he had the judge excuse about half of the panel uh, of 30-something people because of, you know, the uh, aberration to alcohol that... When that came through, when that I am an alcoholic came through, it was a sound wave to the jury. And I did not know how much, but at that point I knew because the defense lawyer stopped, turned around, he realized he had lost the case right there. It, um, it was a harrowing case. It was difficult. It was not an easy case. And I got to tell you that it took a lot of trial lawyering, uh, both for Nick uh, and myself. Uh, it was one of the most rewarding cases. We offered the defense to settle. We thought the case, the the, the, the policy covering the, the entity was one million. We offered to settle at lot or below any and all applicable policy limits. So when the verdict came back at 38.6, and then Nick did an amazing job organizing the, the resolution. I can't talk about those. I'm pretty sure you know about it because you were involved. But um, that was probably one of the uh, trial miracles that I've seen happen, and justifiably so, because unfortunately the defense, the defendants were doing all sorts of not-so-good things. Well, I know that you know, your efforts and Nick's and the whole trial team that resulted in that has taken care of him. You know, I mean, it's pretty amazing to see how he's done post-resolution of that. But that's that that is what trial lawyers do or, you know, 
speak for those that can't speak for themselves in that context and and make sure that they're you know compensated appropriately for what's occurred and i know that that was a, a tremendously life-altering a um, couple, couple more questions. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on in terms of technology today with AI. Uh, I'm curious, you know, looking into the future, what trends do you think are going to emerge in trial practice? And how, how do you think you'll adapt to those with the deployment of these technologies? Because I could see you know, AI being used in a way that that perhaps would, you know, make it harder um, to counteract some of the defense methodologies if they're able to really hone that and, and you know, make it such that it's really hard for the jury to, to discern anything. Well, um, I think that if anything, AI is going to help the, uh, the plaintiff bar. And uh, let me tell you why. The defense has been using AI through the brains of 80 or 100 psychologists that they have hired in what's known as traffic analysis. So uh, what AI can do in 15 minutes, you know, the defense used to pay for the larger cases. I mean, when Mark Lanier goes to trial and, and he's chastised a defense lawyer for over a billion dollars on, on some product case, uh, they've had people come in and take a look at what they've done. They've done. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Richard Jensen, uh, and Richard has been a good friend and a long time, uh, you know, uh, assistant. Um, although I say that he tries the cases. Martin Peterson, I'm sure you know of, uh, and Martin is uh, really educated me over the last twenty something years on how the other side thinks. Uh, and how the other side used to think with honor, but not anymore, since McKenzie changed all of that in the 90s. Uh, so I think that what we are going to be able to see is ask questions of the data that we have uh, in the defense, uh, opening statements, closing arguments, even the, the experts. Um, just imagine being able to ask AI or machine learning if there's some information regarding consistent, I don't know, use of specific uh, psychological warfare excuse. And uh, you have, um, uh, what is the depot, uh, Smith, trial Smith data, and so that you're able to grab everything that John Smith, you know, the trial lawyer for the stars for the defense does. And you see that he has not just the pattern, but that pattern is extremely successful. So I think that the AI is going to benefit us. And literally, I have now a trial that is coming up where we have probably close to 150,000 pages worth of data. And the, uh, the defense is continuing to amass. And I think they have 160 uh, supplemental disclosures pursuant to um, federal rules. And 90 plus percent of the stuff is unrelated, you know, comorbidities. But, you know, they're going to ask for the same amount of time to try and talk about everything that is not the trial. And we have a good judge. But I have AI being, uh, you know, worked into to, in order to separate and to say, okay, what is, what is it that, what's the likelihood that they're going to use it and how? 
and then we use it in order to simplify it. You know, I like the but what aboutism? You know, that's some uh, that's that's one of the psychological warfare. Yeah, we 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 hurt the brain, but what about in this and and so we're we're going to be able to tell the jury in this particular case. So what is defense have to say about these things? Okay, so there is a brain injury, but what about? And just the three most important things that we can rank according to diagnosis. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to read 150,000 pages. Um, uh, even the um, medical records that we summarize were, you know, something like 17,000 pages, and we summarized them into 600 plus pages. I had a hard time digesting all of that and remembering it. But if you can have AI do that, that's good. The disadvantage of AI, I think, is they can do the same thing against us. Uh, you know, I, I've seen, for example, utilizing Nick's uh, example. And by the way, Nick is one of the best travelers I've seen. I had an honor to work with him for a number of years as trial partners. But they start saying, okay, now he's going to come on here and do A, B, and C because they studied him. And so either you do it and uh, you, you perform better or you don't. So I think that AI is going to help uh, as long as the insurance companies are willing to pay it. Uh, some of these um, lower-tiered uh, trial lawyers for the defense to to organize themselves better against the successful um, um, strategies. Um, I spent some time with Joe Fried over the weekend, and he's developed like an amazing you know speed trial, and just giving the jury exactly what they want, knowing. So AI can can help us also. You know, we do a survey. What is it that the group, the specific group of the specific county wants to know about this specific case? So we can tailor our cases to that. And with the diminishing value or diminishing because of competition uh, of AI, I think that that's going to, like any tool, Jason, I think that is, if used properly with a system like trial structure or you know any other trial school that you that you follow, that that you can minimize and the cost of taking a case to trial, which is very expensive, as you know. So um, final question, and we appreciate all the time you give me today. Um, Open-ended, because um, it's trial lawyer view, what, what is your view as a trial lawyer? Well, I, uh, I wanted to be a writer. You know, my my background was more into uh, philosophy. Uh, that's what I studied at Berkeley. Uh, I was more into if you, when I came to Berkeley at age 17, already with a bachelor's degree from Argentina, um, I wanted to study the origin of meaning because I figured, you know, if I could discern, and by that time, Jason, my dad thought, it, I needed to be kind of a studious, so I was already a professor of French literature. Uh, the existentialist can mess uh, a young man's brain, you know. I was a professor of British English, um, and I figured, you know, I spoke about five languages. Uh, not very difficult to speak Portuguese when you speak Spanish, uh, and then a little bit of Italian in the mix. But I figured if if we could find out how it was that Folks would call it a tree. 
and in France, or you know, it would be an Akbar. If if we could then pointing at the same entity, we could devise the meaning. Then I figure, you know, we would be ahead of you know the game in, in answering some of the questions. Now, of course, we had no idea about black holes. We had no idea about the, the rest of the things that we've discovered over this, I guess, close to you know forty something years. Um, as a trial lawyer, there's a lot of work to do, and um, I imagine that as I was growing up through the ranks, the older trial lawyers thought that the profession was going to end. I've, uh, you know, Jerry is in his nineties now. Uh, I met him when he was in his 20s, I mean 70s, sorry, about 23 years ago. And he was talking about the end of the trial lawyers. However, I see that every generation produces a number of men and women, more women, thank God, these days, that continue to pick up the torch, that continue to say, not my, under my watch, not while I have the ability to learn and break. And, and, you know, mind you, we... we uh, we're very successful. I am very humbled uh, about the successes in my career. Uh, the I think that my perspective, my my view is, as long as I can give away the gift that was given me, and, and mind you, I, I I did not start getting good results until my mid to late forties, and I've been a lawyer since I was twenty three. So it was a long, uh, I guess. A desert journey for me. It wasn't 40 years like uh, like the Israelites, but it was a long place. I, I, many times during that time, I said, "What am I doing? I'm not a trial lawyer. I don't I don't know what how to do this. I should quit." And I did a couple of times. But as long as somebody wants to stay in the process, I think I'll be willing to teach through trial structure um, those folks that really pick it up. I used to have dreams of 10,000 lawyers. Now I just want 300. I think that if with 300, and I'm certainly not Leonidas, nor do I want to be, but as long as we have 300 lawyers trying cases every year, try every Monday, hopefully we'll get to 10,000 after after Cersei's is, is defeated. But my perspective is there's new waves. I'm 61 years old. I'd like to uh, I'd like to hang the shingles. Actually, I retired six years ago, but nobody got the text. Um, and right now, I think that my biggest pro uh, project is to help uh, men and women, both Marine and their families out of Camp Lejeune, because that is not just a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I believe that it is such a massive tort, not a mass tort, but it's such a massive tort that the best generation that America ever produced, those folks that are in their late 60s to mid 80s, um, need to be honored. We don't need another wall in, in D.C. We need their lives to be honored right now. And I think that as the news of those trials begin to expand, expand I think that we're going to have more, you know, boys and girls in you know, early 30s in the in the trial lawyering, pick up the, pick up the, the torch and, and move on. So teach as much as I can, enjoy the rest of my life, because I've made a lot of sacrifices. My family has made tremendous sacrifices. And I'm so thankful to my wife, who's also a lawyer, who, um, you know, who, who put it together for us. Uh, I, 
I don't know how else to say it. You know, I wish we could all stay human beings and become better human beings while we also wear the hat of, uh, of being a trial lawyer. Well said, great point to end on. So if one of our listeners wants to get in touch with you or wants to learn more about trial structure, what's the best way to do that? Uh, web is there, trialstructure.com. Uh, you can certainly email me either at alejandro at trialstructure.com or brad at trialstructure.com. He's our executive officer, um, director, that is. Um, a Blanco at the Blanco Law Firm.com is my direct. Uh, I'm, I'm plenty busy. And so uh, if I text a little well, bit to get back to you, my apologies. You can even text me directly, uh, myself, 661 810 2027. I learned uh, over the weekend that Mark Lanier, uh, even though he's busy, he will always answer the phone call. So I figure if Mark can do it, we can do it. Well, thank you again for taking the time to be with me today. I appreciate it. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and encourage you to tune in to our next episode for more helpful insights about your practice. This podcast is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Visit SynergySettlements.com to learn more about how we allow trial lawyers to focus on what they do best.